Good morning. It's an amazing hymn. It really is. Hard to believe. All your sin. He washed it white as snow. You know, sometimes I really wonder what the day of judgment will be like. Sometimes it's hard to wrap your mind around the fact that you're going to stand before God and give account of your life. And that's a sobering thought, to say the least. But one thing that always gives me comfort, thinking about Revelation chapter 20, where he talks about that great day where the books are opened and the deeds of men are in these books, there's another book. No matter what deeds are evaluated in that day for me, I know that there's another book. And that book is called The Book of Life of the Lamb that was slain. And ultimately, because I'm in that book, well, there's no condemnation for me. And that is, um, yeah, that's breathtaking. So thankful for the Lord Jesus. All right, 1 Peter. Back in chapter, well, we're not going to be in chapter 1 anymore. We're moving on to chapter 2. Moving on to chapter 2. Of course, we'll have to read a little bit of 1 to have a little context, but we're going to be moving into chapter 2 this morning. So if you're not there, turn to 1 Peter. Every word here is so precious, and I just want us to appreciate it as we move through. So some of you may think we're going too slow. Well, I don't make any apologies for it. (laughs) This is the Word of God, and every word that we have here is from Him for us. And as we're going to find out, it's actually our milk, it's our nourishment, and it's what we need. God doesn't want us to live on cliches trite statements about Christianity. He wants us to live on words, his words. And we're going to look at that this morning. We're going to read in 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to start, start again in verse 22, and we'll read through 2, 3. Peter says, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls unto a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the Word which was preached to you. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow with respect or unto salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you this morning that you would help us to taste your kindness, your goodness, Increase our faith, increase our strength, our resolve to follow you. Increase our longings for your word, as you tell us this morning, to long after your word as our nourishment and that which satisfies. So Lord, please again, just do what I cannot. Lord, I don't put any confidence in the flesh and my intellectual ability, Lord. Help me to convey your word clearly and aptly that your saints would be built up and you'd be honored. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Peter's been highlighting the life-giving power of the Word of God and the enduring nature of the Word of God. He said that in verse 24 and 25. If you have your Bibles open there, you can see that. 24 and 25. He's, He's really 
uh, uh, focusing in on this issue of the word of the Lord and the fact that all flesh is grass and all the glory of man is like the flower of grass and the grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. The word of the Lord um, is, is unassailable. The word of the Lord is always relevant. The word of the Lord is that which stays uh, well beyond any kingdoms and empires of men, any ideologies of men, the word of the Lord endures forever. And Peter says, and this is the word which was preached to you. Specifically, they're probably talking about the gospel, that when Peter came, or when, whenever these people became Christians, they became Christians because they heard this enduring word of the Lord, and this word of the Lord brought life to them. And so Peter's been highlighting the word of God. He's brought it up as this imperishable seed which has brought about new birth. And he is saying that this word of God and this new birth is, is, is being stated because he wants us to love one another. Verse 22, Peter says, love one another fervently from the heart. So Peter's main focus here, I would argue, in verse 22 all the way through 2-3 is to stimulate us on to love one another. Because love is that indispensable trait of the church without which we fail. Right? Always thinking back about Paul's statements in 1 Corinthians 13 about the primacy of love. Pretty scary statements in some ways, right? You can give your body to be burned, but if you don't have love, you're nothing. You can give all your money to the poor, but if you don't have love, you're nothing. Profits you nothing. That's, that's some pretty intense statement there about your motivations of why you do what you do. And Peter puts here front and center the importance that the body of Christ is, is to be a world of love. Now it's certainly a world not defined by America <laughs> or by the West. It's, it's love defined by the Scriptures, which is epitomized in Jesus Christ he loved self-sacrificially and for our good. And that's what Peter intends here, that we should love one another. And he says that we can love one another because we've been born again. And we've been born again by the Word of God. Peter has this idea that the Word of God brings about life in its hearers. And, and when people are born again, it's, it's God's words that's used to speak life into their souls. And now that Word remains in them in some mysterious but real way. And 1 John is called the seed of God. The seed of God abides in us. God shares his own life with us. See, Christianity is not just one religion among many. <laughs> it is actually God sharing his life with human beings. Now that's an amazing thing, but if you know Jesus Christ, you know that's really the only explanation for why you, you're in Christ, right? The only explanation for why you're in Christ and you love a man you've never seen is because God himself has revealed his own heart and soul to you. And that's exactly what's happened in the new birth. So, <clears throat> but he's bringing this up because he wants us to love one another. We have new natures now. The tyranny of hatred has been broken in our lives and we can love one another. And now as we enter into chapter 2, we will see that Peter has not left his thought about loving one another and the power of the word to that end. Um, and chapter and verse divisions here don't really help us. Because again, I think Peter is continuing his thought. You would think at the end of chapter 1 on to chapter 2 that it's a completely new thought, but it is not. It is continuing on. And that's why the first word in chapter 2, uh, or I say that because the first word in chapter 2 is therefore, right? So um, therefore obviously links us back to the previous section. And what Peter does is he begins to bring up those things which we are to put aside that will tear against the the social uh, fabric of the church. So again, I think that in his mind there's still this, 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 this emphasis on loving one another, and he brings up the importance of putting aside all of these traits, all of these attitudes that will tear apart a church. So he says, therefore, putting aside all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. So Peter is saying here that in light of this living and enduring word that he's about, that he's just brought up, which enables you to love the brethren, 
Put aside all the divisive, destructive attitudes and long for the Word of God. Remember a few weeks ago I was talking about the fact that you have to come to the Bible's conclusions about the Bible's doctrines. Right? And we talked about lots of examples of that. But it's also true here. What do I mean by that? Well, the Scripture certainly teaches us that the new birth brings the inevitable fruit of love for the brethren. Right? Paul can say to the Thessalonians, I don't even need to write to you about loving the brethren because God Himself teaches you that. And that's true. When you become born again, this new principle of loving the brethren is embedded within you, and now that is an inevitable fruit. However, we cannot conclude from this that our new birth so changes us such that we are in no need of instruction or commands or exhortations or anything like that, right? Why do I say that? Well, because Peter's telling us. (laughs) He's saying, you have the new birth now, and this new birth has made you new to love, and yet you still have to take inventory of things in your life that are militating against that love, like malice, deceit, these kinds of things. Peter didn't just stop at love one another because you're born again. He continues with, therefore, putting all aside of malice and envy and those sorts of things. Long for the pure milk of the word. And why does he do this? Well, because while we have a changed heart, this changed heart is still contained within a fleshly human being. We have the Spirit who's changed us, and yet we have the flesh that doesn't want that change. And these are at war with one another, so that at times we don't do what we want if we don't walk by the Spirit. And Peter says if we're to love, we must consciously take inventory of anything that is contrary to love and put it aside. Okay. So... Just because we're born again does not mean we don't need commands. (laughs) There's people in the New Covenant theology camp, if if you care about that sort of thing, which you should, I think. Um, Some people have more time to think about it than others. But there are some people in that camp that, that, that bristle when you bring up the fact that there are commands in the New Testament that you're to adhere to. There's obligation. Because they think that that, oh, that sounds like you're talking about Moses and the law again. I'm like, well, whatever you want to think about it, You've got to read the New Testament faithfully, and if you read the New Testament faithfully, it's going to be bringing up things you must do, <laughs> right? And so that's what we want to do. We want to be faithful to the New Testament. And what does the New Testament say? Well, it says, put aside malice. Put aside malice. Now, this language of putting aside that he starts with here, it, it doesn't seem very powerful in terms of an antidote against sin or, a, or, a, or, or Peter's idea of how to be made holy, Peter's doctrine of sanctification. He just says, put it aside, put aside sin. That, that's all he really says about it. It's interesting. Put it aside. You know, the other apostles say the same thing. Paul says in Romans 13, cast off or put aside the works of darkness. He also says in Ephesians 4, lay aside the old man. James says, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. The writer of Hebrews says, laying aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. The apostles use this this metaphor here of putting aside This idea of putting aside or putting off as sort of an analogy like laying aside a garment that's unneeded or unwanted or dirty. You, You put it aside. You lay it aside. You get it off of you is the idea. And again, you might not see it as very powerful in terms of a method to fight sin, you know? Hey, you're someone who's got malice against somebody else? Put that malice off. That's all he says. You're someone who's got envy? Put that envy off. That's what he says. Lay it aside. It's grabbed a hold of you, take it off, put it aside. But there's beauty in this. 
And can I tell you, it goes against the grain of the American mindset through and through. Why do I say that? The Western mindset complicates things so much because they, they just tie on therapy to everything. They psychoanalyze everything. Why are you doing all these wicked things? Well, maybe it's because of your childhood. Maybe it's because of your father. Maybe it's because of your community that you rose up in. Maybe this is why you do all these wicked things. Maybe this is why your life is a wreck. They, in American culture, they blame all manner of things and everyone else for their sin, except themselves. It definitely can't be me. It's this, it's that, it's the other thing. It was the fact that my ancestors were enslaved, right? It's the fact that I live on this side of town, or whatever it is, or all of the disorders that are out there. Don't get me wrong, they're some of them very real. However, <laughs> The Bible doesn't really go there. It keeps it simple. Very simple and clean. The problem, for instance, in our day with an idea like social justice ideology, which again is still very much rampant in our culture, the essence of the problem with it is that it locates man's greatest issue and problem outside of themselves. That is the fundamental tragedy of social justice ideology. It locates your biggest problem and issue outside of you. Rather than what the Bible does is locate it inside of you. (laughs) Right? Social justice says all these things or why, or why you're doing this. You have every reason and right to burn down buildings. After all, 60 years ago, someone who had the same melanin of skin color as you was oppressed. And that's what they say. And I do, I'm not saying anything about the tragedy of all of that time period because a lot of it was absolutely horrific. However, what people are doing now is exploiting that to make excuses for their recklessness. And Peter won't have it. Peter tells Christians, you got malice? Let's not psychoanalyze it. Put it off. You got envy? Let's not psychoanalyze it. Let's put it off. That's what he says. The power is in the simplicity because what it does is it comes to you who's, oh, I'm this person and did this and they said this and I can't believe in this and that and now, you, now you're out to sort of either maybe avoid them at best or want harm done to them at worst. And Peter comes to you and he says, you know, I'm sure there's a story behind why you or malicious towards this person, or why you're envious, but here's what I'm going to recommend and tell you to do by the Spirit of God. Put it off. The power is in the simplicity. And it cuts through the psychoanalyzation. And it just says, put it off. What do you mean, put it off? I mean, this has been years. Put it off. That's not who you are anymore. That's not who you are. You're born again. You have the Word of God. You have the Spirit of God. You have the people of God around you. Put it off. Don't blame others for your sin. Put it off. Lay it aside like you would an unneeded garment. And the word here is a participle, which just means it's ongoing. It's not something that just happened one time. I mean, there, there is a sense in which you put off the old man one time, but... There's also this reality that there's still this indwelling sin that crops up that you have to continue to put off. Justification and sanctification. We will always be putting off these divisive sins. There's never a place that you can give to these sins. You have to put them off all the time. There's not one that's justified. Now what's interesting, again, before we start to get into the actual vices and sins here in chapter 2, 1 through, in, in the first verse here, 
is that Peter is about to tell us to long for the Word of God. But before he can do this, he has to tell us to deal with these sins. These things that actually tear at the fabric of the unity of the church. Before he can tell us to long for the Word, he tells us to deal with these issues and put them aside. In other words, he's saying malice, envy, slander, these are obstacles to hearing from the Lord in his word. These are obstacles to hearing from the Lord. When one is nursing malice or envy, they are not going to have a hard attitude that befits receiving the word. You know, the very famous quote that most of you have heard, that the Bible will keep you from sin, and sin will keep you from the Bible. And that's the truth, isn't it? It's interesting how they're integrally related. Listen to James chapter 1, 20-23. James says, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and that which remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Think of what James is saying. Putting aside wickedness and in humility receiving the word. These wicked attitudes are rooted in pride and self-love and leave no room for the word when they are nursed. Because see, at the end of the day, malice is rooted in a sense of yourself that is superior to the other person. And when you're in that frame of mind, you have no, no heart attitude of humility to be taught or hear from God. It's pride at the end of the day, isn't it? I mean, that's the root of it all. It's pride. We must set aside these sins and then we can be teachable and humble and take in the Word and experience God's salvation. Peter says, which is able, the Word of God, which is able to save your souls. How important is it to put off these sins? <laughs> well, it's important for your ongoing sanctification. It's important for your ongoing growth. It's important for your ongoing endurance without which you will not be finally saved. We'll talk about that more in a minute. So before we go any further, we want to just stop and just ask ourselves, is the Word of God speaking to you? In this season of your life, is the Word of God speaking to you? I'm not necessarily talking about neon signs, but are you coming before the Word of God and are you hearing it? Is it renewing you? Is it shaping you? Does it have place to work in you? Or are there sins that you need to put aside so that you can actually hear from, from the Lord? Do you have envy? Do you have malice? These kinds of things. Are you so bothered with a person or with people that you can't bear to open the scriptures? There is no doubt that malice and these kinds of vices are actually just as bad for you, maybe worse for you than they are for anybody else. These things are the things that are damaging to you. They feel right, but they're actually they actually lead to death. Put aside malice. Put aside these things. Remember what Jesus said, Who's the, who are those who will see God? <laughs> the pure in heart. It's the pure in heart that see God. Now certainly that means a new heavens, new earth, but there's also the reality that Jesus says that he who obeys my commandments is the one who will have the Father's heart disclosed to them, paraphrase. We will see God more and more as we are pure in heart, as we root out sin. Now, let's get in the, these vices a little bit. So, putting aside all malice. 
And just want us to notice the word all here repeated several times. All malice, all deceit, all, all slander. Of course, the ones in between as well. It's not like you can have a little bit of hypocrisy. <laughs> uh, a little bit of envy. No, all applies to all the vices here. And all means that none of these following traits have any place in the Christian life, period. All of it. Put it all aside. Never a legitimate reason to be malicious. Just can't help but think of King David. You know, when when Saul died, his heart broke. When his own son died, his heart broke. Both of these men were trying to kill him. (laughs) And yet, he maintained a heart for them. That's amazing, isn't it? That's the power of God. That's the kind of love God has. And that's the kind of love we're to have. There is never a legitimate reason to hold on to any of these. We must put them all away. None of them should have a place in our lives. No circumstance, no time in which these must be in our lives. So what is malice? The idea is the desire to harm someone. The desire to see someone fail. That secret joy, perhaps, when someone falls. Think of that. How awful that is. Proverbs talk about not rejoicing at someone's calamity. Malice. This must not have any place in the church of Jesus Christ. We are to be each other's biggest fans in terms of rooting us on in the Christian life. And certainly we might frustrate one another from time to time. But when this creeps in, we must not let this turn into malice, brethren. We must always maintain goodwill and put off malice. Deceit, he says, put off all deceit. Concealing or misrepresenting the truth is that idea of deceit, deception. You make yourself, in the way you talk, seem more spiritual than you really are, or you speak in a way that has ulterior motives. You know, Satan is the great deceiver. Right? In the book of Genesis, he's called the crafty one, right? The one who's subtle, crafty, more crafty than any beast of the field. He's a deceiver, full of, full of guile. And this is what we are to put off. And just check yourself here. Think about this. Do you have malice? Do you have this deceptive attitude toward others where you want them to see you in a way that's other than you are. You know, if there's a place where, if there's ever a place where we can be real, it should be in the church of Jesus Christ, right? If there's ever a place can be real, why do I say that? Well, because, I mean, if there's any people in the world that know who we really are and have come to terms with it, it's us. And yet, no longer do we need to be ashamed per se, because we know that God has remedied this issue. We know that, that we're naked before him, and that's okay, because Jesus has taken on our shame. And so as, as believers, we, we don't need to be deceptive. We need to be real with one another. What about hypocrisy? Again, similar to deceit, actually. Very close. Deceit, often in the New Testament, has to do with things you say that deceive one another or that deceive people. Again, a misrepresenting of the truth. False prophets are, are, are said to be deceivers. Deceitful men. Hypocrisy, though, is it's that, but it's, um, it's, it's deception in all ways. Not just in what you say, but in the way you act and everything. It's it's, it's a mask. It's having a mask on. It's saying and, and acting one way in front of someone while being someone 
very different on the inside and behind closed doors. It's people who act all nice to your face and then they slander you behind your back. You know, hypocrisy is you, you act like you care for somebody and then when you get in the car you talk about how you can't stand them. That's hypocrisy. You know, feigned love. And that's horrible, right? We read about the Pharisees that were hypocrites. I mean, Jesus went after them and you just had a sense that he had veins popping out of his neck when he was talking about the Pharisees with their hypocrisy. And these were very religious men. These were men that knew their Bibles and yet they were hypocrites. They, they feigned this love for God and this air of holiness and yet they hated people, especially those who would compete with them for their followers. That's why they hated Jesus, right? Because he was going to end up taking some of their disciples away. He was going to take them away and and they hated him, and they were hypocrites. They didn't really love God. They didn't really want to please God. They loved the praise of men. But hypocrisy can come in the church, can't it? See, a lot of these things are, it's all heart work, isn't it? Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, it's all heart work. What did, what did, what did Jesus say about the hypocrites? They honor me with their lips, but their what's are far from me. Their hearts. It's all heart work. It's keeping your heart right before the Lord. It's an everyday thing. Put it aside. Envy. Envy is discontent or resentment at someone else's gifts or possessions. Discontent or resentment at someone else's gifts or possessions. You see someone who's gifted in a certain way and you resent that and you're envious. And then that envy turns into, can turn into malice. We see that in the scriptures, don't we? Where do we see it first? Genesis chapter 4, don't we? You see it right there, boom, right off. Right, right after the world is plunged into sin, we see in the first instance in Genesis 4 this horrible horrible episode of Cain and Abel Cain hates his brother because his brother was righteous John tells us this in 1 John he asks the question and, and why did Cain hate his brother was it, what, some, what awful thing did his brother do well he loved God and he trusted in God and he walked with God and and God made his way successful. And this drove Cain to hatred. So much so that he killed him. See what I mean? Envy leads to malice and murder. It all starts there in the heart. What about Joseph's brothers? Joseph's brothers envious of their father's favoritism to Joseph. And, and why? Well, Joseph was was given dreams by God that proclaimed they would end up bowing down to Joseph. Well, yeah, I mean, I, from a human perspective, you kind of get it. But on the other hand, it was from God, so they should have recognized it. But they didn't. They were envious of Joseph. And we have to remember that, especially when we're going around telling people that, you know, one day you're going to bow to Jesus Christ, and you need to realize that. When you understand we might get treated like Joseph. Matter of fact, Paul promises that we will. But this envy in the brothers so overtook them that they threw him in a pit and left him for dead. Then sold him into slavery. Then lied about his death and brought about tremendous heartache with their father. Yeah, envy leads to horrible logic. Horrible, tragic results. Utter heartache, unbelievable damage everywhere, but especially in the body of Christ. Envy in the body of Christ will destroy a church. When you have people that are this one upmanship, you know, that takes root, this, this measuring one another by each other rather than measuring ourselves by the Lord Jesus and God's standards. 
will always lead to division. What about slander? Again, comes from a heart of perhaps of being envious or malicious. Things start coming out of your mouth. Slander is saying something to damage someone's reputation or paint them in a bad light. Now there's a place, right? There's a place for exposing sin. There's a place for marking a situation where two people aren't getting along and we need to help them out and those things happen, but but in those situations, the motive is to help. But slander is speech that taints and damages someone's character behind their back with no real resolve to want to help. And why do people do it? Why do people slander? It's to make them feel good about themselves, right? To make them feel superior. That's why they do it. Proverbs 16, 28. Talking about the negative effects of slander. A perverse man spreads strife and a slanderer separates intimate friends. You know, you say one thing about an individual and maybe you're just having a bad day, but that individual finds out that you've been saying these things and guess what happens? That person you were close with that maybe you were annoyed with with that day and you let come out of your mouth, now you're separated. Separates intimate friends. The tongue is so powerful, brethren. So powerful. And we can get very comfortable with each other because a lot of us know each other for a long time and are getting to know each other and we're coming closer and closer. And we can get so comfortable we let our tongues loose sometimes and we need to be careful. I didn't write this proverb down, but I always think about that proverb that a brother offended is harder to be one than a strong city. And I tell you what, when you offend somebody, you really offend them with what you say, it's hard to gain back that friendship. You need to recognize that when you're saying things and speaking. You need to put away slander. You need to put away that heart that wants to burn someone there in your conversations with another about them. Psalm 101.5, whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, God says, him I will destroy. No one, listen to this, no one who has a haughty look and an arrogant heart will I endure. And that's why I say these things are rooted in pride, in arrogance. That's where these things are rooted. And they have no place in the Christian life. Why? Because again, we've seen how wicked we really are and we have no place to be doing this. Right? We have no place to be doing that. Unless it's real cancer that we need to extract and it's a collaborative effort and all that. Unless it's our duty because of the good of the brethren and the good of the person, the good of the church. But on the whole, slander, maligning someone, has no place in the church of Jesus Christ. So he says, we must put all these things away. All of this. There's not a second that it needs to to take root or, or be among us. And as we do that, and we put all that away, like newborn babies, we long for the pure milk of the word. We long for the pure milk of the word, like newborn babies. Now, Peter uses this term, newborn babies, not in a derogatory way, you know, like Corinthians. I speak to you as infants. It's not the way he's using it here. He's using it just by way of analogy. Peter is saying there's a sense in which we are to be like newborns. <laughs> Newborn babies. Well, in what way? Well, in the way that they long after milk. He says to long for the word like infants long for milk. Now this word here, long is the term that has to do with earnest desire, longing, and craving. The, uh, the exact term comes up when Paul, when Paul is expressing how he longs to see new believers to help them grow. Longs to see them, to help them grow. He longs to be with them. He longs to grow them up. The term is also used for the Christian as the Christian groans 
in this earthly, fleshly body, longing to be clothed with our glorified body, never to sin again, 2 Corinthians 5. Longing to be clothed. How deep a desire do you have to not sin anymore? (laughs) That's this word. It's pathos. It's just this earnest desire and longing to not sin anymore. And we sang that earlier in, uh, in Come Thou Fount. Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see his lovely face. I mean, my heart went, yeah, yeah, that's right. So ready to be freed from sin. (laughs) So ready to be freed from me in my fleshly nature, finally and fully. And that's this term. It's this eager desire. It's a term of earnestness. Peter is saying that infants have these longings, these hunger pains for food, for milk. Believers must long and have hunger pains for the word. That's what he's saying. Within the idea of of longing, in the context here, is this dual notion of delight and nourishment or satisfaction. And we'll see this in the psalmist in a minute where he sees the scriptures as the vital nourishment of the soul and a delight to his heart. But I want us to understand that this is actually the only imperative that you have right here in our section, is long for the pure milk of the word. Putting aside is actually participle, but long for the word is again where Peter is heading. Remember like earlier when I said he's saying love one another, that was the main command, surrounded by these other participles? Long for the word is the command that he's bringing out here. This is what he really wants. He wants you to long for the word. And he knows that you can only do that as you put aside these sins. But what he's saying here is that I'm telling you where your heart needs to focus. I am telling you what you need to, to sort of pine away for, what you want to be longing after, what you need to be earnest about in your life. And he's not asking you to to long after dull, dry, ineffective, boring lists. He's telling you to long after that which will bring light and life to your eyes. Just like an infant longs after after the nourishment of, of, of her mother's milk, Peter is saying, this is this is how and why you long for the word. Now, it's no wonder that the longest chapter in the whole Bible is about the Bible. (laughs) It's about the preciousness of the Word of God. Psalm 119 is the personal expressions of the psalmist in prayer, expressing commitment and longing after the Scriptures as that which is the way of the Lord. Derek Kidner says about Psalm 119 that... He says this, this giant among the Psalms shows the full flowering of that delight in the law of the Lord, which is described in Psalm 1, and gives its personal witness to the many-sided qualities of Scripture praised in Psalm 19. So Psalm 119, I'm going to read a few verses here of how the psalmist expresses this longing that Peter's talking about. But before I do, I just want to say that thought occurred to me that one of the main things we forget sometimes in the busyness of life is that coming to the Word, you should have this this paradigm in your mind, this idea of the Word of God in your mind, that it is your nourishment. It is your delight. So often, it's very hard to get get our minds and hearts in gear to remember that. We, 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 we're busy, feel like we don't have time, we're emotionally flat, and so we go to the scriptures with this hem-haw, you know, casual approach. And hey, sometimes, you know, our emotions are flat, and it is what it is, and we should get in the Word of God anyway. But Peter wants to remind us, and the psalmist is going to remind us of how this Word of God is that which brings life. This Word of God is that which delights our souls. And we need to remember that, brethren. 
The word of God is certainly something to know in terms of getting doctrine straight. But it's something also, it's also something where we actually meet God. It's the place where we meet with God. It's interesting. Throughout Psalm 119, and of course we don't even have time to read even that much, but oftentimes you can hear him going between, I long for your word, I long for you. I long for your word, I long for you. When he gets in the scriptures, he knows that it's God's mouth opening up. And this is, this is again, I think, what, what Peter is after. And I say that because after he's done telling us to long for the word like newborns, he says, if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. Well, see, see he's assuming that you're, new, you're born again. And if you're born again, you've tasted the goodness and the grace of Jesus Christ. You've tasted the goodness of God through the gospel. And since you've tasted him, you want more. And so long after his word, which is where he is, and you will taste it again. That's what he's getting at. The word of God is, according to Psalm 19, that which gives light to our eyes. It's that which rejoices the heart. It's that which is sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. It's that which revives us, right? That's what the word of God is. That's what it does. When you have trouble getting in the word, remember how delightful it is to bring God's word before your eyes. Now, Psalm 11940, just listen to a few of these. The psalmist says, Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me through your righteousness. Psalm 119.20, my soul is crushed with longing for your ordinances at all times. Think about this. Do you talk like that to the Lord? Do you talk like that? Do you talk like that to him? Is the word of God so valuable that you, that you think that way? I mean, listen, the psalmist, my soul is crushed with longing for your ordinances at all times. It's like, it's like the psalmist continually feels in the dark if the ordinances are not in his mind and heart. I'm just crushed for longing for you, for your word. It's a lamp. It's everything to me. Psalm 119, 130. Listen to this. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Feed me. Refresh me. Is this the word of God to you? And I ask myself the same question. The word of God is, it's, 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 it's our food. And obviously this checks us in terms of what we really long for. Right? It does check us there, doesn't it? It checks us for, in our life, what are we earnestly desiring? on a day-by-day basis. Think back to the analogy of infants. When infants crave milk, they long for it and delight in it as it satisfies their hunger. And when they go for three hours without it, they start to get cranky, and they seek to be filled with it again. Hence, my soul's crushed with longing for your ordinances at all times. That's that expression. I want to drink again. Peter is calling believers to this. He's appealing to our affection and our sense of well-being. He's calling for our sense of well-being to be tethered to the Scriptures. If we haven't been in the Word for a time, we should begin begin to sort of ache and become preoccupied with our need to get in it, to be filled again and to be satisfied. Is that your view of the Bible? Is that your view of the Scriptures? Is that your view of yourself? That you need it for food? It's really scary when you have no sense of your need for God's word as a light and as food. 
And man, I have been there in seasons. But we have to do justice to the scriptures. This might sound like emotionalism, but we just have to do justice to the scriptures. Peter wants us to be longing for the word of God. Do you know something of this longing? What do you long for? Do you long for podcasts, audiobooks, news articles, news feeds, news outlets, more than you do the Word of God? Audiobooks aren't bad. Podcasts aren't bad. Reading the news isn't bad, although I don't recommend it a lot these days. What do you long for? Again, we're trying to do justice to what Peter's saying here, right? Like newborn babies, new covenant, long for the word. Long for the word. Here's a way to test. Do you ever put things aside that aren't necessarily bad for the best of foods in the scriptures? You know, you've got an opportunity of, you got some free time, you got some decisions to make. <laughs> what do you do in those times? Do you long to be more confident in the Lord? I do. Do you long to be more clear in the teaching of the scriptures, more confident in the gospel, more effective in spiritual warfare? Do you long to be more stable and reliable in the Christian life? All of these things are achieved by meditating and growing in your knowledge of the Word of God. The Word of God is the life-giving power of God in your life. I mean, that's what, it, that's what He mysteriously but truly does through His Word. Have you drifted from this longing? Have you been lazy exchanging the truth of God for vain things? Well, then the psalmist also can relate to you. And if that's you this morning, I don't want you to utterly freak out, even though it's a scary place to be, truly is. But listen to the psalmist and pray this for yourself. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Turn my eyes away from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. Establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. I want to fear you again. I want to see you rightly. Turn away my reproach which I dread, for your ordinances are good. See, he knows that if he stays away from the word, it's going to be nothing for reproach. He's going to live shamefully. But as he's in the word of God, he will be protected. Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity. Oh my goodness, how many vain things can we look at in a day? A lot. I mean, I, I, you know, a lot. There's, and there's so many cool things on YouTube. And there's a lot of cool stuff. I mean, don't have, super cool, but utterly empty. Empty. Vain things. They don't feed your soul. They don't rejoice your heart. They don't give light to your eyes. They don't bring real spiritual revival and awakening. Now Peter calls it milk. The pure milk of the word. Again, not using like Paul in 1 Corinthians describing fundamentals of the gospel. He's using it as the non-negotiable nourishment without which one will not grow and inevitably die. You don't feed a baby milk? Over time, that's what will happen. The Word of God is as important to a Christian as milk is to a newborn baby. Do you see that? Do I see that? <laughs> Lord, help us see that. And again, this isn't the only times the scriptures are likened to food, is it? Jesus said, man cannot live 
on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Oh, Jesus is just so hyper-spiritual. Well, no. That's the way he was able to overcome Satan in the wilderness. The eternal son of God himself overcame Satan in the wilderness by the word of God. So a lot of you get pummeled in warfare because you don't have the word of God in your hearts. That's just the truth. Clayton gave me an illustration one time of this where he was talking about not having the word of God and being in the ring with Satan. It's, it's like you just walk into the ring and he's ready there and he's got all this, he, you know, he, he's gearing for you and you stand up there and if you don't have the word of God, it's like you just sitting there just taking it all day long. Just boom, boom, boom. That's what it is. Just defenseless. The word of God is everything. Everything that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And he says it's pure. It's without any contamination. Psalm 12, 6, the words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times without any contamination. You know, he's just talked about putting off deceit and malice and hypocrisy and envy and all that nasty wickedness that brings division and destruction. And he says, go to the word that's pure. Renew your mind. And why should we long for the word? We long for it because by it you may grow unto salvation, he says. So that by it you may grow unto salvation. Longing for the milk of the word and meditating on its truth has this amazing result of growth. Now, well, before I get there, let me say one more thing. When we long for the word, we grow with respect to salvation. This is the result of you being in the Word. That's encouraging, isn't it? You get in the Word, you, you, you take it in, you, you meditate on it, you think about it as much as you can in a day, every day, as much as you can, and you're going to grow. You're going to grow. You're going to become more and more like Jesus. You're going to grow. This term grow is a term used in context of plant life, Jesus referring to the lilies that grow without toil, or referring to the mustard seed that grows into a full-blown tree. The idea is that of increase in maturity and progress and fruitfulness. That's, that's, that's this term. Acts 12, 24, the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. It didn't just stay in one spot, it grew out. The idea is increase, fruitfulness. What I was going to say is that some people think, and especially in Reformed circles, I think, that because the Scriptures and our own indwelling sin experience teach us that, that we'll never experience final definitive freedom from sin in this life, that we should expect no progress or growth in this life. In other words, there's this, there's this notion that because we do have indwelling sin that we can't experience real growth. Growth is not something we talk about very much for some reason. And again, a lot of times it's because we're always blaming indwelling sin or thinking that it's overpowering us so that we can't grow. And I want to tell you that Peter holds out for us this prospect of growth through the Word of God. Not downplaying the reality of indwelling sin, but saying that we got to come to the Bible's conclusions about the Bible's doctrines, right? Because we have indwelling sin doesn't mean that we can't grow. We can still grow. We downplay the, the power of the new birth so easily, the power of the Word of God so easily. We see so many in the professing church with little to no power or fruitfulness and we think the new birth must not be so miraculous after all. That's what we think. It's because we stopped looking at the scriptures. And we've forgotten that, that few find the narrow way and many of those people are not believers. And we've let the realities that Jesus and Peter speak about vanish from our sight. See, the new birth comes and changes us so that we can now 
love. The Spirit of God in us uses the Word of God to bring about growth in the Christian life. Try to illustrate this a little bit. You know, I was thinking, if you have relatives with toddlers and young children that you haven't seen in, let's say, four years, and they come and visit you, and those same kids that you haven't seen in four years are the same height, use the same verbiage, still using a pacifier, still drinking from a bottle, you would think something is wrong. I mean, we, we all would know that quickly. Why? Because humans grow. If you're not growing, something's up. Human beings mature. They progress. They increase in their ability to accomplish things in this world. And it's the same in the Christian life. If you haven't seen someone in four years, professing believer, and they see you and they go away from you thinking, oh, there's so-and-so, there's Chris, still self-focused and a gossip, still living with childish ideas and immature anxieties, not any different, this is not good. You're not growing. But if, on the other hand, they can, they can see your stability in Christ has gotten stronger, your attention to eternal things has become more pervasive, your priorities have become more aligned with God's priorities, you're speaking His Word as it pertains to issues and struggle and sin in your life, and bringing God's Word to bear on these things, and you're calling on Him more and more because you realize you need Him more and more, then you're growing. That's what we're talking about. And you know the difference between the one who's grown and the one who hasn't, according to Peter? What's the difference? If you were to take a snapshot of their life and you knew, I don't know how you would know, but if you looked at their day-to-day life over four years and you would look at their time in the Word, you look at this person over here who has grown and you look at their time in the Word, it's going to be like this in terms of their time in the Word versus this. And I think that's what Peter's getting at. Peter's getting at this Word of God will bring about growth in your life. And if you are not in it, it won't. And what kind of growth is Peter talking about? Well, he's talking about a growth that will continue unto final salvation. He says it. Grow unto salvation. The term is unto, denoting a result. You will grow unto salvation. It's a salvation issue. In other words, these believers are to grow with a growth that results in final salvation. Peter's already talked about salvation in the, in, 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 in the future tense. He's mentioned it in five. This salvation is a sort of an end-time reality for him. Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You grow unto salvation. And I think Peter here is thinking the same concept that James brought out easier. The Word of God which is able to save your souls. So Peter is saying that just like milk's vital for the growth and survival of any infant, so the Word of God is vital for the growth and final survival of the believer. Listen to Luke 8.15 and then we'll close down. Jesus talking about the parable of the soils. For the last soil, here's how he describes them. These are the ones, these are the Christians, the real Christians. These are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast. They hold on to that word and bear fruit with perseverance. Unto the end, they're still bearing fruit. Now, it could be 30-fold, it could be 100-fold, but there's fruit, there's love, there's life. It's still there. And that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about an ongoing growth. In 2 Peter 1, 4 through 11, Peter's point is that God's promises and power will so, can so work in you and, and must work in you so that you add all these virtues. We don't have time to go in there. And 
And if these virtues that He wants you to have are not there, then you forgot about your former purification of sins. Your reason for assurance of your election dissipates. And so on. Well, I got more things to say about this, but let's just, we'll just stop here. I've already gone over. But I want to encourage us all with this reminder of what the Word of God is. It's our food. Right? It's our food. It's something we need every day. You know, if you miss a day or two, if you miss, whatever you miss, not saying that you're going to hell. What I am saying, though, is you need the scriptures like babies need milk. <laughs> and I don't want to reduce this and qualify it the death of a thousand qualifications. This pure milk we need will enable us to grow. And I want to grow. Don't you want to grow? As a church, don't we want to grow? We don't want to. We don't want to become stagnant thinking we figured it all out. We need the Word of God always to renew us and remind us and refresh us. So why don't we pray for that and, and ask the Lord to continue to grow us as we long for His Word. And then next week we'll, we'll pick up with this idea and finish it up. Father, thank You for Your Scriptures. Lord, thank You so much that You've given us this food. And Lord, more and more in our lives, we pray that you would help us with the psalmist to, to be able to truly testify that it is a delight. That it is sweeter than honey on the honeycomb. That it is that which rejoices our heart, that which gives light to our eyes. And Lord, we pray that you would also give us the dual need, which is also discipline every day. Lord, we're going to wake up not necessarily wanting to get into it. And Lord, help us to go with it with the conviction again that this is your pure word. This is your word that will, this is the Lord, this is the word where you are, where you speak to us, where we find you, where we find your kindness and goodness, and we taste it. So Lord, help us to remember that. Lord, there are so many other competing vain things to set our eyes and our focus on. Help us to be disciplined people. And help us to be people that don't short-circuit ourselves. Lord, you're, you're calling us to the best of foods in the Scriptures. And certainly, Lord, the most glorious part about it all is that it reminds us of your own dear Son. It reminds us of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It reminds us that, oh Lord, that, that He has become everything to us. Our wisdom, our, our sanctification, our redemption. It's all in Jesus. Our acceptance with you is bound up in him. And Lord, we read about this again and again in your word. Help us to remember that too. That gospel that continues to save us. And we ask all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.